Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today with the retirement of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, we'll take a closer look at how his time on the bench will be remembered and the politics of naming his replacement. Also this morning, to your health, overcoming the stigma of gastrointestinal issues, because some common GI symptoms could be a sign of serious health issues, and the only way to know is through honest communication with your doctor. And we have details on upcoming live entertainment in February at the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts. Executive Director Heather Clough will tell us what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, January 31st, 2022. So we were talking about this uh, story, I think, uh, last week, and um, now there is a, a new development, a new twist in this. Some members of Congress are speaking out against a plan by the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, to require Americans to have their face scanned in order to access their tax accounts. Uh, the original plan or the plan is as soon as this summer, anyone who wants to access their records, including information about child tax credits, payment plans, uh, their filing status and more on the IRS website would be required to record a video of their face with their computer or their smartphone, send it to a private third party contractor called ID me to confirm their identity. Uh, and in fact, it is already in operation for some interactions with the IRS website. Now, the IRS, the government, says that this is a matter of security. It is the most secure way to make sure that people who aren't you don't access your tax records. And that's a good thing, but... In addition to some federal lawmakers, concerns have also been raised by privacy advocates worried about how the face scan images will be protected themselves, particularly because it's being handled by an outside contractor. Although I'm not sure that if we're being handled by the IRS directly by a government agency, that that would make people feel any better. Uh, there is no federal law on how the images and or data can be used or shared which is part of the concern. Senator Ron Wyden said he is very disturbed by the plan and will push for more transparency from the IRS, saying no one should be forced to submit a facial recognition as a condition of accessing essential government services. Uh, Democratic Representative Ted Lieu called it a very, very bad idea that we're f that will further weaken Americans' privacy, all in the name of security. So stay tuned on this. We certainly have not heard the last of that story. Again, the idea of you know protecting your tax information from people posing as you uh, and accessing it for nefarious purposes, that's admirable, but... Is this the ultimate way that it should be done? I guess we'll find out. Um, don't believe everything you read on the Internet. Case in point, police in Florida are trying to squash rumors about a horse with a bad skin condition. 
Apparently, there's a story out of Sarasota. I had not seen this, but this has gone viral, apparently. Sheriff's deputies say the owner of the horse has received unwa- uh, unwarranted scrutiny and criticism after photos and videos of this animal appeared on social media. According to police, they were alerted to the horse as far back as October, and a veterinarian founds this uh, find this horse suffers from chronic sunburn as a condition that the, the horse suffers from chronic sunburn, which, if you're a horse living in Florida, that's probably not a good thing. They get a lot of sun there. Uh, some people, though, have uh, upon spotting this horse, have threatened to steal the horse to, quote-unquote, save it from an abusive owner, and that's not the case at all. Police say the horse is getting appropriate treatment from a veterinarian for his sunburn and is otherwise... Uh, healthy and happy and doing just fine. So don't believe everything you see on the internet. You know, here's the other uh, story, another example of this. Have you been following this? I saw this a few days ago on social media. It popped up on on my newsfeed. Somebody had shared it, and I immediately thought, this can't be real, or this can't be the whole story. One of the juiciest conspiracy theories making the rounds right now comes from parents who apparently overreacted to a joke of a rumor started by some kids at school. I don't know whether they meant for this to be a joke but or not, but it is spread out of control. One mom flew off the rails at a public hearing at a school board Uh, meeting at the Midland Public Schools in Michigan after claiming she heard that the district was putting litter boxes in the restrooms at school for kids who identified as cats. (laughs) Have you seen this? This story has been making the rounds on social media and people believing this. um, Apparently, a disturbed parent took took to the podium at Uh, Midland Public Schools Board of Education meeting back in December and went off about unisex bathrooms and then went on this tangent about supposedly a litter box had been placed in the bathroom for kids that identify as cats. They call them furries. (laughs) Among those who believed the rumor was Michonne Maddock, Uh, co-chair of the state's Republican Party in Michigan, who shared the video on Facebook of the school board meeting, and then it just went viral. The backlash has become so intense now that the school district had to go on record to deny the rumor, saying that there have never been, (laughs) there are not now, nor have have there ever been, litter boxes in the Midland Public Schools. Uh, And apparently it doesn't stop there. This rumor has gone on by extension. A Texas school district had to go uh, on the record after a uh, congressional candidate uh, there in Texas tweeted out that lunchroom tables at this school district were being lowered so student furries could eat out of dog bowls. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the superintendent of schools in that district said that she had heard from concerned parents and... uh, had to go on record to say this is absolutely false. Absolutely false. It is not. <laughs> Don't believe everything you read on social media. Litter boxes in the bathrooms. I mean, come on. Do we really believe this? 
It's, the superintendent of Midland Public School says, I can't believe that I actually have to issue this statement. <laughs> but here we are. Uh, let's see here. A couple of other uh, interesting buzzworthy stories to get your uh, week started. Uh, you do have to laugh at things like this. And that's probably a, a, a good thing, but a mysterious part of human evolution. Human laughter. It is clear to evolutionary scholars that we laugh as a part of play, signaling our cooperation or friendliness. But how did laughter evolve? And are humans the only ones who do it? As it turns out, the answer is no. Animals laugh too, according to researchers. Uh, Primatologist and UCLA anthropology grad student Sasha Winkler And UCLA professor of communication Greg Bryant have uh, undertaken a research project taking a closer look at the phenomenon of laughter in the animal kingdom. And they found that such vocal play behavior is documented in at least 65 species, not just humans, but a variety of primates, along with domestic cows, dogs, foxes, seals, and mongooses or mongeese. Is it mongooses or mongeese? I don't know. But they laugh too. Also, they say three bird species, including parakeets and Australian magpies, also laugh. Of course, it doesn't sound quite like our laughter, but they, they say, how do you know if an animal is laughing? I mean, what do you, you know, what is the criteria to determine, oh, well, that, that animal is laughing. I mean, how do you know? It doesn't sound like our laughter. It sounds something different. So, Presumably, anyway. I've never heard a dog laugh like we do. But anyway, kind of interesting. And lastly, among the first things you need to know this morning, is it your birthday today? Well, happy birthday to you. You know, there are a bunch of freebies you can get for your birthday from, like, chain restaurants and things like that. Uh, Charles Passy, a writer for Market Watch, recently decided he was going to take advantage of as many of the freebies uh, for his birthday as he could. And he found out that some are not really worth the trouble. He says some birthday offers actually come well before your actual birth date or last beyond the date. So you don't have to take advantage of all of them exactly on your birthday. But he went to 11 different retail establishments and restaurants to pick up his freebies, including Subway, Krispy Kreme, McDonald's, and Sbarro, uh, the fast food Italian restaurant. Each place had its own issue, he said. For example, Subway's app gave him trouble. He could claim he was trying to claim his birthday freebie, and it was uh, a pain uh, in the Subway app, but the worker there at the restaurant was still nice enough to give him his free cookie for his birthday. At Sbarro, workers were completely unfamiliar with the birthday program. Apparently, nobody actually claims it. Uh, but they were uh, still nice enough to give, his, uh, give him his free slice of pizza anyway. And he also noted the vast monetary difference between the freebies. Uh, for example, McDonald's, you can get a free apple pie for your birthday. It's valued at buck seventy-nine. Krispy Kreme, on the other hand, gives you a dozen original glazed, glazed donuts. He said in the end, the biggest obstacle was just driving to each establishment to pick up the birthday freebies. So 
I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting if you have a birthday uh, today or if your birthday is coming up. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of free things you can get. Some of them not necessarily worth the trouble. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. Welcome to a new week. WSIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather becoming mostly sunny today with a high of 29, partly cloudy tonight, a low of 18. The National Weather Service says forecast models are indicating the potential for a significant winter storm to impact the region beginning on Wednesday. Forecasters say while there's still uncertainty with the storm track, people should stay weather aware. Forecasters say what track the storm ultimately takes will make a big difference in precipitation types and amounts and over what areas. Snow, rain, and freezing rain all are possible. Get the latest forecast on our website. Traffic fatalities increased significantly in Ohio last year. 1,361 people died from traffic crashes in Ohio last year, and that's a 10% increase from the previous year. Lieutenant Matt Crow is commander of the Finley Post of the Highway Patrol. We just want to remind drivers that when they're out on the roads, watch your speed. And please pay attention to your surroundings. Don't be distracted by any uh, thing in your vehicle or electronic devices. According to the Highway Patrol's website, there have been 68 traffic fatalities so far this year in Ohio, which is down significantly from the same time last year. A star talent and member of one of Bowling Green's most prominent musical families has died. Alex DePew, an accomplished fiddler, was killed in a car crash in Mexico, according to a statement from his family on Facebook. DePew, alongside his siblings, was part of the DePew Brothers Band and classically trained on violin from a young age. At 14, DePew won the rights to play at Carnegie Hall. The DePew Brothers played together for decades, pioneering a unique style of music they called grassical. Alex DePew was 49. Dave James, I went in news. Finley Trojans boys basketball coach Jim Rookie recently notched win number 500 for his career. We asked the coach about his most memorable wins over his lengthy career. Beating Toledo St. John's in 2007 in the regionals stands out as a big win. Beating Lima Senior in 2004 or 5, I forget, uh, they were ranked number one in the state. Those couple wins really stand out. On our website, you can listen to our full interview with Coach Rookie. The Finley Trojans are back in action Tuesday night at home. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Our cover story this morning, of course, last week, Stephen Breyer, who has served as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court since 1994, announced his intention to retire at the end of the current term, coming up in June. Joining us this morning to discuss Justice Breyer's legacy and the politics of naming his replacement is Dr. Scott Gerber, constitutional law professor at Ohio Northern University's Pettit School of Law and associated scholar at Brown University's Political Theory Project. And Scott, as it turns out, this was uh, one of the uh, interesting things. Uh, apparently, there is nothing preventing the naming of a replacement and even confirmation hearings being held before Justice Breyer actually retires, which is a bit unusual, not the way it has happened uh, in recent times, but apparently that is exactly what's going to happen this time around. Yeah, correct. He uh, he made it clear that he'll serve until his successor is named, mm-hmm. and so you can't name the successor until after the Senate confirms uh, her yeah, uh, obviously it's it's going to be an African-American woman. Apparently, uh, the president uh, has uh, 
pledged at that, which I want to get to here in just a moment. But before we do that, what will what will the legacy of uh, Stephen Breyer be when the history books are written? How will be how will he be remembered for his time uh, on the court? Uh, I think he'll be remembered as a as a bright man, as uh, a very nice uh, man, and as a moderate liberal who tried to uh, serve as the intellectual leader of the left side of the Supreme Court mm-hmm. uh, in opposition to the intellectual leadership of the late Justice Scalia on the right side of the Supreme Court. Yeah, I've, I've heard Justice Breyer described as a pragmatic liberal aligned with the liberal wing, but not always predictably so. So, which kind of brings up the, uh, the question uh, of a Biden nominee, whoever that turns out to be, uh, will will she likely move the needle significantly with respect to the philosophical balance of the court? I mean, obviously still a 6-3 conservative majority, but do liberals pick up a more reliable vote more than likely with uh, his successor? Yeah, uh, it, it's difficult to tell. I, I know who the leading three uh, names are. Yeah. Um, and I'm, uh, I would think that... Um, uh, Judge Brown in the D.C. Circuit would push the court a little more to the left than Justice Bra- would would be a little more to the left than Justice Breyer was, who was more moderate. Um, I think uh, Justice uh, Kruger out in uh, the California Supreme Court. What I've read about her, she's a little more of a moderate uh, liberal, like uh, Justice Breyer, and she actually um, is, is quite young as well. And then uh, the the third name that's circulating most often is uh, J. Michelle Childs uh, from South Carolina, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure where uh, uh, she stands on these things. She's a federal a trial judge. The other two are appellate judges, and so they have more written opinions and things like that. Yeah, a trial judge for the most part provide presides over trials and doesn't write these sort of systematic mm-hmm. opinions that appellate judges do. Yeah. Uh, it was an interesting fact. It was pointed out some of the uh, coverage of this that I was watching over the weekend. Clarence Thomas, whose career you studied and written extensively about, is now the only Supreme Court member nominated by the president of one party and confirmed by a Senate controlled by the other party. And much has been made of the fact that Stephen Breyer was confirmed by a Senate vote of 87 to 9 back in 1994. Did we have a better Supreme Court when we had that kind of bipartisanship? Um, I, I don't know if it was better, but the, the atmosphere in, in Washington and also, I think, in the country was certainly more polite back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think any of the three leading uh, uh candidates are, are, are bright qualified people and you know this idea and i've said this in other contexts before but this idea that you know only a few people can do that job and on the supreme court's not true lots and lots of people can do it and what i've seen of these three p- 
people, they could all do it and do it effectively. You know, along those same lines, there was an opinion piece in New York Magazine last week which pointed to the trend of nominees under the age of 60. You mentioned that uh, these are very young candidates that are being considered this time around again. And uh, it pointed out that you know, the most accomplished judges would naturally be more experienced and, and likely better qualified for the highest court in the land. Is there a case to be made that we are sacrificing the quality of, of the Supreme Court in the interest of maximi- maximizing the longevity of party influence? Yeah, yeah. I, I strongly disagree with this, uh, this push by recent presidents. I think President Trump did it quite a lot, that he wants people as young as possible so they can serve as long as possible. Yeah. And it is true that with age comes experience and, and, and with experience comes uh, wisdom and real world perspectives and things like that. Uh, Judge Brown is 51. Uh, Judge Kruger is 45. And Judge Childs is uh, 55. Yeah. Um, Very young. Know, for, the 40, yeah, 45 is pushing it. But she's been a, a California Supreme Court justice since her late thirties. And she's Hmm. very, very, very bright. I mean, she was the editor in chief of the Yale law journal. And, uh, and what I do for a living, that's about as good as you can get (laughs) when you're a law student. Yeah. So she's bright. She's rocket smart. And well, just one more point on that. It is true that in, in the distant past, we have had people is in their early thirties up there, Joseph story, Hmm. William O. Douglas, uh, for example. So it's not unheard of. And Clarence Thomas himself was 43. Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, that's, those are very young ages by judicial standards. I mean, the amount of time it takes to become an attorney and then rise uh, through the ranks. Uh, that's, uh, that's quite impressive, uh, in terms of age for a lot of these, uh, candidates you're talking about the same argument though, uh, could be made about the president's pledge to nominate a black woman. Only 51 of the current 1395 federal judges are African-American women. Now, yes, diversity is important, but But again, the point has been made in some of the discussion over uh, the president's pledge to nominate a a black woman to the Supreme Court that immediately disqualifies an awful lot of people. Yeah, this is that that's a very controversial issue at the moment. And um, the uh, the the incoming and he's supposed to start tomorrow, uh, executive director of, of the Constitutional Law Center at Georgetown University. He made some kind of comment about that, and uh, there's talk that he's going to get fired before he even starts. Hmm. Um, President Reagan, uh, when he was campaigning, he promised that he would name the first woman to the Supreme Court, and that was Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah. And so, you know, what President Biden did is really no different uh, than that. I, but I will also add that polls show that more uh, more than three-quarters of the American people don't want the pool limited. Uh, 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 They want everyone considered and frequently you'll get people um, that satisfy the other considerations that you want when you judge people on the merits anyway. Yeah. And these people have strong merits. They do. Yeah. You pointed out that these are very bright individuals, very accomplished uh, individuals that are being considered. And as you uh, say, Sandra Day O'Connor was kind of a pledge by President Reagan. And that seemed to work out uh, pretty well. 
Uh, one other question on the politics of all of this. On NBC's Meet the Press yesterday, Senator Dick Durbin, who is chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, was asked about the timeline for confirmation. Democrats, you recall, cried foul when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed in less than 30 days right before an election. And uh, Senator Durbin said the timeline would depend on whether the nominee had been before the committee previously. And uh, Judge Jackson has been. Now, he stopped short of suggesting that she should be the front runner, but the implication seemed quite clear. To what extent will the president take expediency into consideration when making his choice? I think he's already said he's going to move it along. Um, And we all we all know why, because the midterms are coming up. Right. And there's a good chance that the uh, the, uh, the Republicans will take control of the Senate. And if they can take control of the Senate, as we've already seen, uh, Mitch McConnell will will roadblock uh, any nominee to the Supreme Court. Um, and so uh, it's hard to fault President Biden as a practical matter for realizing the reality of that. And I also think it's plenty of time. I mean, uh, Judge Child, she was before the Senate. She was confirmed to a federal trial judgeship. So they've already seen her. Mm-hmm. Same with uh, Judge Jackson. And then, you know, Justice uh, um, uh, um, uh, Kruger, uh, you know, she had to go through the Merit Commission in California. Uh, She she had to be vetted when she was Deputy Solicitor General of the United States. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't take long uh, to figure out if these people have skeletons in their closet these days. That's that's that is a, a a good point. I mean, it used to take much longer uh, to do this deep dive into someone's background. That certainly is a lot easier now than it used to be. Correct. Correct. You can find almost anything about anyone on a Google search. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, that obviously plays uh, into it as well. Uh, really interesting uh, stuff to see how it will play out over the next uh, several weeks. And I'm sure once we actually get a, a nominee, we get into the confirmation project uh, process, we'll uh, speak again about that. Again, Dr. Scott Gerber, Ohio Northern University's Pettit School of Law and Associated Scholar at Brown University's Political Theory Project with us this morning. Scott, thanks very much for your insight. We appreciate it as always. You're welcome, Chris. Well, to your health this morning, we are joined today by Dr. Phil Hart. He is Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at the Wexner Medical Center at The Ohio State University. He's also a counselor for the International Association of Pancreatology and Associate Editor for Pancreatology. We're talking about how common gastrointestinal symptoms could be a sign of a more serious condition and why doctor-patient communication is vital to your health, particularly in this area. And Dr. Hart, first of all, let's talk a little bit about that, that communication, those lines of communication. Why is it that so many people find it so difficult to talk about gastrointestinal issues? Well, Chris, thanks for having me today. You know, um, this is this is an extraordinarily common uh, situation that people are often not uh, comfortable uh, talking about. We recently completed a survey with uh, uh, cooperating with the American Gastroenterological Association, and we found that half of of a thousand individuals who were were surveyed had experienced GI symptoms to the degree that they impacted their daily lives and interfered with their activities. 
And you can imagine there are multiple different reasons for individual patients, but there were some common threads, common themes. So uh, certainly one of the first and and most difficult situations is that the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted relationships of all sorts, including between patients and their healthcare providers. But but these sorts of problems existed even prior to the pandemic. So that alone is not the explanation uh, in totality. There are a number of other things uh, that we had uncovered, including that many patients are embarrassed. You know, they don't feel comfortable uh, discussing these symptoms uh, with their healthcare providers. They wait with the hopes that uh, their healthcare provider may, may raise the question. Uh, there's another group of people who just don't seem to be uh, alarmed by their symptoms, perhaps even though they should be. You know, so uh, approximately a quarter of, of uh, respondents indicated that they wouldn't be concerned with any of, of what we would consider to be alarm symptoms, such mm. as unexplained weight loss or bloody stools even. And then there's there's another group of people who just feel that these types of symptoms are just something that, that they need to tolerate and, and to suffer in, in silence, so to speak. So how do we move past that um, uncomfortable nature that you find many patients have with discussing this with a doctor? How do we open up those lines of communication, particularly about these particular subjects that are, uh, for many people, difficult to talk about? Yeah, there, I think there are a, a number of different things, you know, that would be helpful to, to open up these conversations. And, and you know, within the healthcare uh, provider community, th- there's our part of, of this to, um, to think about in terms of how to approach this and make things uh, easier and um, require less effort for, for our patients. But from the patient side, I think there are at least two primary things to be aware of. I mean, the first is that these types of symptoms are very common. I think many people have the the sense that what they're going through is is not is not um, uh, it's uncharted territories, you know, yeah. and that nobody else would would have these types of problems, and therefore it just doesn't seem right to to bring this up in in conversation. And then there's also just the reality that um, for many people these are these are embarrassing topics to mm-hmm. to discuss. And I think. One of the key things for for patients to understand is that healthcare providers are very familiar with these types of symptoms, and we're here to help understand what are the symptoms that that we should be troubled by, what are the symptoms that we expect, and we maybe just need to, you know, make minor adjustments to. And so there's there's a couple different parts of it, I think. Now, a lot of what we are discussing to this point could be applied to any number of conditions uh, that patients, unfortunately, don't discuss uh, as openly as, and as honestly with their healthcare providers as they should. But specifically, as it relates to GI issues, what are some of the, and you mentioned a couple of them, uh, relatively common symptoms that could be a sign of a, a more serious condition and what kind of conditions are we talking about? Yeah, you know, I think if if there's nothing else that people remember, I think hearing these these symptoms that that, that should warrant additional attention or what we often refer to as alarm symptoms, mm-hmm. these are things that would include ongoing and unresolving diarrhea, uh, unexplained weight loss, uh, foul smelling or oily stools, or bloody stools. And these symptoms um, may be simply explained by, uh, you know, benign and common problems such as hemorrhoids. But on the other hand, these uh, could, could represent something as severe as cancer. 
Now, there are a number of other, you know, considerations, um, some of these being common, some being lesser common. But, but one thing that, um, that we're recognizing is, is a particularly difficult uh, clinical situation to pinpoint is something referred to as EPI, which stands for exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. And this can be very difficult uh, to pinpoint because we, we don't have a, uh, an accurate and convenient test to be able to, to um, it, uh, offer to patients. And so it requires, um, first off, the disclosing of the symptoms so that the healthcare providers are aware of this. Mm. And so that's just one, one case example of, of why it's important to, to, number one, recognize, and then number two, to discuss these types of symptoms uh, with healthcare providers. That is a really good point because I'm sure that there are some people that say, well, I, I really don't want to talk about this. And besides, the, right. the doctor during the you know battery of tests will probably pick up on anything that's wrong anyway. But you say in this case, you rely on learning about those symptoms that patients are experiencing because otherwise you wouldn't know. That, that's correct. That's correct. Without without the initial recognition that the symptoms are going on, um, there are many many conditions that that healthcare providers just wouldn't wouldn't think to ask about. I mean, there are endless possibilities of uh, syndromes and diagnoses, and without having some type of clue or concern for one or the other, um, it's not something that would typically be be considered. Again, talking about overcoming the stigma, particularly of GI issues, and starting that conversation conversation to getting care uh, for what could potentially be a very serious condition. Uh, Dr. Phil Hart is Associate Professor of Medicine, again, the Division of uh, Gastroenterology, the Wexner Medical Center at The Ohio State University. Where do uh, people get more information uh, on some of these issues we're talking about here? For those uh, who are interested in getting more information about any of these symptoms or conditions, including excrement pancreatic insufficiency, I'd encourage uh, listeners to, to visit patient.gastro.org. To your health this morning, Dr. Hart, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much, Chris. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to us a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. So, uh, <laughs> evil twins apparently do exist. And uh, Kevin Duger, Duger or Duggar, D-U-G-A-R, Kevin Duger can prove that he has an evil twin. Long story short, his twin brother committed a murder. And Kevin was the one who got thrown in jail for it 20 years ago. Uh, this is a report out of uh, Chicago. Kevin's twin, Carl, finally, 20 years later, confessed to killing a rival Chicago gang member back in 2003 and thus clearing his brother of the crime. <laughs> 20 years Later, the confession came a little too late, considering Kevin had already been waiting at Cook County Jail for the past two decades for the truth to set him free. In addition, uh, Mr. Smith is already in prison on a 99-year sentence for a violent home invasion. Uh, Smith confessed in 2018 to being the one responsible for the uh, homicide in 2003, but a a judge denied it as not credible and shut down his brother Kevin's chance at a new trial, there was an appeal made by the Northwest Center of Wrongful Convictions, and a judge ruled in Kevin's favor last week. Um, that's why this is now in the news. Finally, 
And and Kevin says he he hopes he's not one he doesn't want a new trial. He just wants prosecutors to throw out the evidence uh, after reviewing it one last time and just dismiss the charges, set him free. He said, "Forget this new trial stuff. I don't want a new trial. I want I just want out of jail." That's you can understand twenty years. And his brother could have set the record straight and let his brother rot in jail for two decades. Now that is an evil twin right there. That's. <laughs> Uh, elsewhere in the uh, broken news on this Monday, it turns out that video games might be a little bit more dangerous than you might think. Now, people have said for years, you know, video games are, you know, detrimental to children's health and all of that, yada, yada, yada. They've been saying that about everything from, you know, rock and roll music to <laughs> revealing swimsuits, you know, it's, it's ruining the next generation. But it turns out there might be some uh, serious health issues. Here, a 31-year-old man from Germany broke his neck while wearing a virtual reality headset. You know, one of those VR headsets? Apparently, doctors say he played for up to four hours a day and got the injury due to his repetitive and intense movements. (laughs) Medics say the repeated strenuous movements wore down one of the vertebrae in his neck and eventually caused it to crack. Experts who treated the man at the University of Leipzig Hospital in Germany says uh, they say this is the world's first documented case of VR-related stress fracture, but it may not be the last. In a medical journal, the team wrote the man's injury resembled one seen in uh, long-distance runners sometimes and more frequently military soldiers. Treatment included wearing a neck brace for six weeks to support his neck as it healed, uh, it took 12 weeks. He is fully recovered now, but I would imagine probably cutting down on his video game time. is uh, That's crazy. Broke his neck. His VR headset. Uh, the final day of January on the cusp of February, of course, when all the attention turns to matters of love. Valentine's Day coming up here in a couple of weeks. A couple of uh, love-related stories in the broken news this morning. A woman on TikTok says she uses a very unconventional technique when it comes to online dating. You might want to try this. Uh, she says she posts, and I don't have her real name. I have her, her TikTok, TikTok handle. Uh, Shanalo whatever. <laughs> whatever. Um, anyway, she says she uses only ugly photos of herself when she posts on dating profiles in the hopes that her date would be then pleasantly surprised when they meet in real life. <laughs> she also says she ups her chances of matching with someone who isn't shallow by posting pictures of herself that are maybe less than ideally attractive. <laughs> I'm thinking that's kind of risky, isn't it? Initially, she said she didn't get any matches. But in a recent update, she said she has been on a date with someone who said she looked much better in person. So, apparently it's working. (laughs) An interesting strategy there. And finally, in the uh, broken news this morning, actually kind of a light day for the broken news on this Monday. Uh, Again, a dating-related story. For those who are sick of swiping right on those dating apps, there is a hot new concept in dating actually meeting people in real life. I know, it sounds crazy. But uh, a new app, new dating app called Thursday, 
is uh, very different than the norm. It hinges on its users actually meeting face-to-face. What a concept. Here's how it works. According to the website, every Thursday, the app comes to life with people near you who also want to meet. Thursday's matching and messaging features are only active on Thursdays. And then after that, they're wiped from the system. Users are led to its after-party mixers. They set up uh, a mixer at a local establishment and then invite all of the users to come and meet and greet and mingle. The first was held in London back in October. They have since expanded to New York City and more cities to follow. According to the New York Times, the app was downloaded 340,000 times even before its first in-person event, and the mixers have uh, since been well-stocked with folks sick of the online dating scene. The same old, same old on online dating. I know, it's a crazy concept. Meeting in person. What does that say about our society today that we need an app to meet in person. That's crazy, isn't it? Uh, there you go. Uh, that is today's uh, broken news. Uh, this update in the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Why? Why do we ignore the things that give us pause, that seem out of place, that don't feel right? The answer to why defines who we are. So if you see something, why do you say something? I see safe for my friends. For my community. For my family. Because all of this matters. We all have something worth protecting. So why do you see safe? Report suspicious activity to local authorities. If you see something, say something. This message provided by WFIN. Time for your daily download, the numbers behind the news, and the statistics that shape our lives. You know, a few things in sports are better than a clash between two bitter rivals. For fans, what could be more satisfying than win over the team you love to hate? Well, the answer might be winning the heart of your bitter rival's biggest fan. Three in four sports fans, three out of four, admit that they would leave the rivalry at the door if it meant having the chance to score by finding true love with a fan of their rival team. <laughs> Nearly 2,000 sports fans in this poll, 74% say it is okay to cross enemy lines uh, for, uh, in, in the name of true love. Uh, most commonly, NHL fans, hockey fans, say that that's fine, 77%. NBA fans, 76%. Major League Baseball fans, 75%. And NFL fans, 68% said that that was okay. <laughs> so a larger number than other sports say no that's not even if you're if they're a fan of the other team no forget it by the way the uh, friendliest fans were their rivals the Timberwolves the Ottawa Senators the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Toronto Blue Jays so <laughs> in case you're wondering hot punk cool punk even if it's old junk still rock and roll to me so February is right around the corner, and uh, obviously, you know, that means a uh, big romantic time. Some uh, great shows coming up at the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts in the uh, month of February. There'll be great date nights, most notably the music of Billy Joel and Elton John, starring Michael Cavanaugh. Uh, Michael Cavanaugh is, uh, actually has uh, played, um, he was handpicked, it says here, he's handpicked by Billy Joel to star in the uh, hit Broadway musical Movin' Out, this is based on uh, Billy Joel's life. So uh, he knows uh, Billy Joel intimately inside and out. And he has uh, taken a number of 
uh, great Billy Joel hits, including uh, Still Rock and Roll to Me, Piano Man, uh, Moving Out, and weave those into uh, the great hits of Elton John, like Rocket Man and Benny and the Jets, I'm Still Standing, and more. Uh, Polestar has ranked this show in the top 50 uh, touring acts and shows in 2019-2020. It's not really a, a tribute band or tribute you know, performance, just the performance of the music of Billy Joel and Elton John. Uh, Michael Cavanaugh is an Ohio native, and uh, so that's going to be a terrific show. That is coming up on February the 10th, and there are really good seats still available. Of course, they're all really good seats at the Marathon Center. But that is coming up on February 10th. So you're looking for a great uh, date night event to uh, take your uh, sweetheart to. That would be it. Um, just running through chronologically what's going on in the month of February at the Marathon Center. Dinosaur World Live is happening uh, Tuesday, February 1st. Hey, that's tomorrow. And uh, that is an evening show. Uh, geared for kids um, that uh, gives uh, youngins and opens their imaginations to the astonishing world of dinosaurs. It says, join a host of impressive creatures, including every child's favorite, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, for a dynamite adventure. And that is happening tomorrow evening at the uh, Marathon Center. On uh, Wednesday, February the 9th, uh, it is the uh, Kids Spark series for little kids. And this happens in the uh, afternoon of uh, February, not the morning. I think there are two shows, uh, morning and uh, early afternoon, of Dr. Kaboom and the Wheel of Science. This is great for uh, homeschoolers, young kids. It's uh, geared toward... Uh, grades three through eight, and that is happening on Wednesday, February 9th. Uh, we mentioned the music of Billy Joel and Elton John, uh, starring Michael Cavanaugh on February 10th. Then coming up uh, on February 7th, it's another performance in the Spark series. This for kids pre-K through grade two, the Pout Pout Fish, presented by Theater Works USA. So this would be great, too, for the uh, for the little kids. Again, there are a couple of shows, I think uh, 10 a.m. or 10.30. Um, yeah, 10 a.m. and 12.30. Uh, so those happening in the afternoon of February 17th. The Pout Pout Fish, presented by, presented by Theater Works USA, is a uh, really, cool, uh, really cool show. Uh, it says, turn, turn the poutiest of frowns upside down in this new musical... Featuring whimsical puppets and live performers in a sweeping oceanic adventure. Um, one cancellation for the month of February, the February 17th uh, Live at Arms series performance by Chris, Chris Bathgate has been canceled. So scratch that from the uh, schedule. But on February 19th, that's a Saturday, Josh Melton and a night in Nashville. Uh, that uh, happening at uh, Arms uh, as well, the Arms Hall. And... Uh, that is going to be a great show. Josh Melton, Melton always puts on a, a great show, and that in a nice, intimate uh, intimate theater setting uh, for that one on February the 19th. Again, a good post-Valentine's Day date night for you and your sweetheart. Then on Sunday, February 20th, this is great for all ages. 
It is presented by the Child's Play uh, Theater. It is part of the family series uh, at the Marathon Center. But this is great for uh, all ages, especially those who are uh, nostalgic for Schoolhouse Rock, uh, the classic Saturday morning cartoon series uh, that we all remember from our childhood explodes onto the stage, updated for a whole new generation with imaginative image projections and a rock and roll feel. Uh, Schoolhouse Rock Live is uh, February 20th. That's a Sunday. And uh, tickets, again, available right now. And then to uh, wrap up the February schedule at the Marathon Center on Thursday, February 24th, the uh, University of Findlay Symphonic Band and Wind Ensemble in concert. It is in memory of the uh, mother of uh, University of Finley director of bands, Wes King, her mom, Olivia, or his mom, Olivia, uh, unfortunately lost her life in Colliersville, Tennessee. You remember back in September 23rd in September, uh, the uh, shooting uh, at a Kroger store there in Tennessee uh, claimed the life of uh, one woman in that tragic shooting. And it happened to be Olivia King, the mother of West King, the University of Finley director of bands. So they have put together a tribute concert uh, in her name, and uh, that will be on uh, February 24th. That is a Thursday, and uh, that will also be held at the uh, Marathon Center at the Donnell Theater. And if you uh, need more information, want to get tickets for that or any of those shows, you can check the Marathon Center website, mcpa.org. We have that linked up at our webpage at goodmornings.net. So some fabulous shows coming up in the month of February. Apologies to uh, Heather Clough for our uh, difficulty in connecting with her this morning, but uh, definitely want to let you know about the uh, terrific shows that are coming up at the Marathon Center this coming month. And it all starts uh, tomorrow, that first show. And that will put a wrap on our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, it's a case of be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. We'll speak with the author of Agenda 2060, which imagines a world where the woke culture goes unchecked in the name of creating a utopian society. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.